Did you ever hear the tragedy of Osiris who died? No. I thought not. It's not a story the monotheists would tell you. It's a Seth legend. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 192, The Trouble with Seth. Around 1300 BCE, the king of Egypt was officially named Men-Ma'at-Ra. This name translates as the Ma'at, or Order, Justice, Truth, of the sun god Ra, is established or enduring. Men-Ma'at-Ra is a classic pharaonic name. It conveys the supremacy of the sun god Ra, the essential order of the world, Ma'at, and the obedience or devotion of the particular ruler to that cosmic concept. But every king of Egypt had multiple names. And this ruler is no different. Men-Ma'at-Ra is more commonly known to history by his personal name, that is, Setehi, or Seti, a name that roughly translates as belonging to Seth, or Seth's man. This is an unusual name. Across the long annals of Egyptian history, there are many kings who use the names of deities within their royal titularies and identities. If you go through the king lists, you'll find plenty of rulers who invoke the gods Amun, Thoth, or Jehuti. Montu and Osiris, and there are many, many references to the sun god Ra or Re. And yet, across the 2,000 years of our story so far, we have not encountered a ruler who used the name Seth as part of their personal identity. We have encountered Seth in the political and iconographic realm. A very early ruler named Peribsen made explicit references to this deity as part of their political identity. But King Seti I, around 1300 BCE, is the first ruler explicitly named after this god. Why did it take so long? The short answer is that in Egyptian religion and mythology, the god Seth is a complicated figure. Officially, he was the brother of Osiris, and also the goddesses Nephthys and Isis. Together, these four siblings were one of the early generations of deities descended from the great creator, Atum-Ra. And on earth, it was Osiris and Isis that ruled Egypt as the king and queen. As the stories go, they were good rulers, who taught humans the secrets of agriculture, and helped develop many facets of civilization. But... While Osiris was a good king, his brother, Seth, was jealous. Seth desired the power of Osiris and the kingship for himself, and so he hatched a treacherous plot. The nature of this plot varies depending on the story you read, but long story short, Seth killed Osiris and dumped his body into the Nile or the sea. Subsequently, Osiris' widow, Isis, gathered up the king's remains and brought them back to Egypt. Then, with the assistance of Anubis, Isis wrapped the body of Osiris in a shroud, preparing the first mummy. 
Using their powerful magics, Isis and Anubis restored Osiris to a form of life. It wasn't mortal life. Osiris was still dead, but he would now live as the king of the afterlife, and his resurrection gave hope to mortals that they might achieve the same thing. One of the twists in the story is that following her husband's death, Isis was able to conceive a son, Horus. She used her powerful magics to draw forth the seed of Osiris, and she placed it within her womb to create an offspring who could avenge his father. Subsequently, young Horus grew to maturity, and he and Seth engaged in a series of contests to decide who was fit to rule Egypt. In some accounts, the conflict lasted for 80 years, with each side prevailing in different contests and battles. Sometimes, Horus emerged victorious, other times, Seth came out on top, and other times they used trickery or underhanded practices to deceive and gain a point over the other. Ultimately, the conflict was rather indecisive, and it had to fall to a lawsuit before the Council of the Gods. Again, the nature of the dispute changes depending on the version, but all of them agree on one thing. Eventually, Horus emerged victorious, the crown of his father was awarded to him, and he took the throne as the eternal king of Egypt. So the tale ends in the defeat of Seth, he fails to achieve the kingship, and thus he is punished for his crime against Osiris. So the story ends relatively happily, and it explains why every king of Egypt is a descendant of Horus and his father Osiris. But, as with all happy endings, what came afterwards is a bit more complicated. Although Seth failed to take the throne of Egypt, he did not walk away empty-handed. The great creator Atum-Ra recognized Seth's value, and he gave the god powers and dominions within the divine world and the natural. In particular, Seth had power over the deserts, the storms, the winds, and even the waves of the sea. These were lands of the outsider, so Seth was kept apart from the natural world. But to some degree, the conflict between Horus and Seth ends with a kind of reconciliation or peaceful coexistence. Horus rules humanity, specifically the Nile Valley and the people of Egypt. Seth, however, rules over foreign lands, the chaotic worlds beyond that tidy stretch of river. The point is, Seth remained a figure worthy of respect, a being of great power, whom people and kings could look to as a protector and defender. So the rivalry between Horus and Seth comes to a somewhat happy ending. Nevertheless, there is always that one thing that Seth did, how he betrayed and murdered his brother Osiris. That never goes away, and it remains a consistent theme within religious texts throughout Egyptian history. The end result is that we have a deity, Seth, whose legacy and role within the world is complicated, to say the least. On the one hand, Seth is an archetypal villain, a man who slew his own brother in a most deceitful and wicked fashion. On the other hand, Seth is a valiant and skilled warrior, one who deserves fear, but also respect and even veneration. If that sounds confusing, well, that seems to be the point. Seth is a multifaceted deity, 
He does not fit into a simple binary of good versus evil. He is, rather, a chaotic but natural force, one that has a part to play in the God's world and our own. With that in mind, we can start to see why, until now, no Egyptian king has used a personal or throne name that invokes the god Seth. Every king of Egypt, in a religious sense, was the physical incarnation of Horus and the son of the god Osiris, with those two deities making the ruling house. A god like Seth would not exactly be an appropriate name for a ruler. But then, along came Seti I. After the death of his father, Ramesses, Seti I took power as a king of Egypt. As far as we can tell, he was always named Seti or Seteki, but he didn't change this name when he became the ruler. That might sound strange, and it certainly raises a bunch of questions. First of all, if Seth had such a negative reputation, why would anyone name their child after this god? And secondly, If that child happened to grow up and become the pharaoh of Egypt, how would they reconcile their personal identity with their new political and religious one? How could Seti I, a living Horus, use the name Seth? We'll start with the human question. Why would somebody name their child after Seth? Isn't that a pretty evil name to use? Well, to start with, Seth himself is not actually evil. A word like evil is far too simple to describe Seth. The god is chaotic, he is violent, he is undisciplined, and he is antagonistic towards the ruling lineage. But the Egyptians didn't necessarily think of him as an evil god per se. Instead, it seems like Seth was recognized as a violent, but natural part of the cosmos. The idea seems to be that if you have a concept like truth, justice, or order, you're naturally going to have something that is the opposite of that. Seth, in all of his chaotic fury, is the opposite to the established laws, rules, and boundaries of a civilization and society. But that oppositeness, that rebellious nature and personality, was not evil in a modern philosophical sense. It was simply a part of nature. And for all Seth's violence, his unpredictability, and his sheer dangerousness, the god could be an incredibly valuable asset. For example, let's quickly go back to that myth about Seth, Osiris, and Horus. Although Horus emerged victorious from this dispute, Seth was not left out in the cold. The god himself did receive a blessing from the great creator, Ra, who looked favorably upon Seth, and appointed him as the lord over the deserts and the winds and storms that strike on sand and on sea. Ra also made Seth the guardian or protector of his solar bark, the ship which he sails across the sky. Seth would defend that boat from any enemy who would seek to destroy Ra and end the cosmic cycle. So, at the end, although Seth failed to achieve his goal of the kingship, the great creator Ra recognized his value and gave him a role within the natural world. So, once again, a word like evil 
is far too simple for the god Seth. He is violent, but he is mighty. He is chaotic, but properly channeled. That chaos can be used for the betterment of Egypt and its people. Seth's authority over the deserts, the sea, the wind, and storms made him an essential and tangible part of the natural world. And when you put all of that together, you get a deity who is dangerous, but well worthy of respect. With that in mind, we can start to see why somebody might name their child after Seth. And surprisingly, there are many examples of names that reference the deity from Egyptian history. In the New Kingdom, for example, we come across names like Aasuti, Seth is great, Bakhet en Setech, the servant of Seth, Suti Mesu, or Seth is born, Setecher Kopeshef, Seth is upon his sword, and Setech em Hebef, Seth is in his festival. Names like these are not common compared to other ones that reference Horus or Amun, but they do exist, and they give a sense that the cult or religion of Seth was still part of the Egyptian social and religious landscape. The god was dangerous, but he was respected, feared, and even admired by many people in the land. So that's why you might name your child after Seth. What about that second question? How did Seti I, a living Horus, a king of Egypt, reconcile his personal identity with the god for whom he was named? How could a Horus also be Seth? This question is quite interesting because it has a definitive answer. From his monuments constructed throughout Egypt, we do have evidence for Seti I and his followers consciously adapting their work to reconcile the king's personal identity with his political and religious identity as a pharaoh. The god Seth is a complicated, even confusing figure. His role within mythology and religion is one of a chaotic, trickster kind of deity. But he still has power, a great deal of power, one that makes him a useful ally both for mortals living their lives and for kings ruling Egypt. This could lead to some intriguing, but occasionally contradicting situations. Most notably, the reign of Seti I. After the break, we will explore the relationship between this pharaoh and his namesake god. Seti honoured Seth a great deal, and he praised Seth with monuments and offerings. At the same time, however, there were situations in which Seti's namesake, and even his personal identity, were a cause for conflict. That is after the break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. 
We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Seti I has a legacy as a great builder. The king was particularly active in the construction of monuments, and you can find his work in many places across Egypt. On most of these monuments, you will find the king's cartouches, his throne name, Men Ma'adra, and his personal name. In those personal cartouches, Seti spells his name with a distinctive hieroglyph. It looks like a man sitting down and wrapped in a shroud, but his head is not a human head. Instead, it is the head of the Seth animal. The Seth animal is a strange being, possibly mythological or a composite. It kind of looks like an anteater or a donkey, with squared ears that kind of cut off at the top. No one knows exactly what the Seth animal is, but the hieroglyph for Seth appears in Seti's personal name. The king made no secret of his origins or the deity for which he was named. In fact, Seti also commissioned art on his monuments that explicitly showed Seth as an object of veneration and part of Seti's royal identity. For example, in the grand hypostyle hall at Karnak, that magnificent hall filled with columns that Seti commissioned, you will find images of the god Seth. In one scene, Seth and Horus stand to either side of the king, Seti, and the gods reach up with vases to pour water over the head of the king. The water takes the shape of the Ankh symbol, meaning life. So, symbolically, Seth and Horus together bless the ruler with his existence. In this scene, Seth appears in his classic form, with a human body and the head of that strange animal. It's a powerful scene that appears to present Seth and Horus as equals, cooperatively responsible for the power and blessing of the Egyptian kingship. So at least from that image, we get a sense of Seti I's personal attitude towards the great god. He seems to respect him and consider him an important part of the royal image. We also have scenes of King Seti I directly worshipping the god. Another image, also at Karnak, shows Seti kneeling before Seth, who is referred to as Setech Aa Pechti, Seth, Great of Strength, and Yotef Sutti, his father Seth. In this scene, the god doesn't appear in his classic form with that strange animal head. Instead, he appears as a normal human male, standing alongside the goddess Nebethut or Nephthys. In mythology, Nephthys was closely associated with Seth, and originally she used to be his wife. So basically, it's a classic scene of the king making offerings to a divine couple. It's the same sort of image as Seti kneeling before Amun and Mut, but it's one of the rare occasions where we see Seth in person. There are other monuments in which Seti praises the great god. In the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, there is a stone offering table, a sort of altar used to purify and anoint goods before they were presented to the gods. 
This offering table is dedicated to the god Seth, who is explicitly named in hieroglyphs, and the cartouches make it clear this offering table was commissioned by Seti. So we can imagine the pharaoh purifying items like food and drink or precious stones and gold before offering them to a statue of Seth. Presumably this offering table comes from a temple, but unfortunately it doesn't have an exact provenance or place of discovery. So we're not sure where Seti was making these offerings, but he was certainly making them. One last monument, but perhaps the most interesting, is the crumbled remains of an obelisk. It is currently in Alexandria, but originally it was probably located in Iunu or Heliopolis. The piece is now just a slab of stone, but it still has images and hieroglyphs that show Seti I. Well, they sort of show Seti I. The obelisk has a scene of the great creator deity, Atum Rei. He appears as a man, seated upon a throne, and wearing a sun disk for his crown. Atum reaches out with one hand, holding an Ankh symbol, meaning life. He is presenting this Ankh to an image of Seth. On this obelisk, we find the deity in his classic form, with the strange animal head. But this time, he does not have a human body. Instead, he has the body of a lion. This obelisk seems to show Seth as a sphinx. That's an extremely unusual image. In fact, at the time it was created, it may have been unique. There are other images of Seth as a sphinx, but they come from later periods. So as far as I can tell, Seti's image might be the first example. The significance of this is unclear, but it may have something to do with one of Seth's other duties, and a curious overlap he has with the Great Sphinx at Giza. As we discussed, Seth is a god of chaos. He is also lord of the desert, of storms, wind, and the raging sea. Those are his duties in the cosmos and the great natural world. But on Earth, in human society, Seth is also associated with foreigners. Especially during the New Kingdom, between 1500 and 1100 BCE, Seth was often connected with the peoples outside of Egypt. These might be enemies who threatened the safety of the Nile Valley, or they might simply be those beyond the pharaoh's authority and recognition. In other words, the people who lived in the chaotic outside world. By an interesting coincidence, the Great Sphinx of Giza had also become a symbol of deities associated with foreigners. From the New Kingdom, especially the 18th and 19th dynasties, archaeologists have found small shrines and temples near the Great Sphinx, which invoke deities from other lands and give them honour and praise in connection with that monument. I can't say for sure if this is what Seti was intending. I have not found any detailed studies of this particular image. But it is an interesting coincidence. The Great Sphinx of Giza has deities, or at least shrines, associated with foreigners. Seth is connected with the concept of outsiders, and has mastery over foreign lands. Put them together, and you get an obelisk from the time of Seti I, in which Seth himself appears as a sphinx. Seti I is not the only ruler who praised this particular god. From the New Kingdom, we do have art from other pharaohs, 
who acknowledge the power of Seth and give him due respect. But Seti I is unique in that he is explicitly named after the deity. And this could be a problem. Although the king was quite open and upfront about his namesake and his original identity, Seti also had to deal with the religious and political ramifications of his role as a king of Egypt. More specifically, as the incarnation of Horus and the son of Osiris, Seti would encounter situations where his name was inappropriate for certain deities and monuments. The problem starts with the hieroglyphs. As we mentioned, the royal cartouche of Seti includes the hieroglyph of Seth. This is an essential part of the name, and it's a core part of how he spells it. But Egyptian hieroglyphs are not just art or writing. They have their own power and magic. For the ancients, images and art could have significant power within other realms of existence. This might be simple magic, or it might take effect beyond the earthly world, the afterlife, or the realm of the gods. For Seti I, this was a problem. Because his name included the hieroglyph for Seth, there were going to be situations where the king's name would need to appear on a monument or in a context where presenting the symbol of Seth and thus giving him power was entirely inappropriate. This problem is most visible in the monuments associated with Osiris. Recently, we made an extended visit to Seti's great temple at Abydos. That monument is beautifully decorated and constructed, and it is full of images of Seti making offerings to various deities. Of course, he also makes offerings to Osiris, who is the lord of Abydos, and for whom the temple is basically dedicated. But you can't have a monument to Osiris that also includes references to Seth, the archetypal rival of Osiris. That would be like building a temple to Biggie and including Tupac, Michael Jackson and including Prince, Megan and including Nikki. So Seti and his artists had a problem. How could they include the king in the religious scenes without bringing the god Seth into Osiris' domain? The Egyptians did have a way of dealing with these kind of issues. Like all languages, ancient Egyptian has homonyms and homophones, words with radically different meanings, but which are spelled or sound the same. Some basic examples include the word mer, which can mean love or beloved, but can also mean pyramid, or the word nebej, which means an evil one, but can also mean a plait or a strand of hair, or sebet, which can mean a wrong thing, or simply cargo, like you might carry on a ship. Those are just a few of the noteworthy examples where a word might have a positive and a negative connotation, depending on context. But you get the point. So if a scribe needed to write a particular word, but they wanted to guarantee the proper meaning, they had to make adjustments to ensure the correct reading. The same is true for art. In monuments like tombs or temples, the artists might need to draw dangerous animals, for example the beings who live within the underworld and pose a threat to the deceased. But while they needed to include those animals, they didn't want to give the images their symbolic and magical power. 
In those cases, Egyptian artists or scribes would often include small features to negate the danger. If they drew a snake or a hippopotamus, they might add a sword or a spear that cuts through the animal. That way, you can still read the art or the writing, but the dangerous meaning is removed from existence. That's the standard response for dealing with words or images that might have dangerous connotations if presented incorrectly. But that's fine for your standard texts or even the images on tombs. How do you deal with it when it's a pharaoh? The big challenge for Seti I was that his personal name was also the name of a living Horus. With that in mind, the artists and scribes could not exactly damage or intentionally deface his cartouches just to negate the power of the Seth animal. So when it came to certain monuments, they had to think outside the box and find other ways of presenting the king's name. Their solution was quite intriguing, and it tells us a lot about religious attitudes of the time and the way royal or personal identity could work in different contexts. Let's start with Abydos. In the great temple, sacred to Osiris, we have many, many images of Seti. We also have many examples of his cartouches, both his throne name, Men Ma'at Ra, and his personal name, Seti or Setehi. Well, I say Seti, but that's not really what it is. Throughout this temple, the king's artists actually changed his personal name. Whenever they needed to show the Seth animal, they would substitute different hieroglyphs to give slightly different representations of the king's identity and his name. In some examples, they would replace the Seth hieroglyph with an image of Osiris, the tiny symbol of a man seated on the ground, wrapped in a cloak, but wearing the distinctive crown and beard of Osiris, appears in place of Seth. In other examples, they might include the Tiet knot. This is a specific type of knot which is associated with the goddess Aset or Isis, the wife of Osiris and an important part of the mythological tale. Finally, they would sometimes replace the Seth animal with a simple man, seated on the ground, bound in a robe, and with long hair and a beard. At a glance, it's a relatively simple substitution, and if you're not versed in Egyptian hieroglyphs, you might not even notice the difference. But the changes are significant. For one thing, they completely change the meaning of Seti's name within these monuments. None of these hieroglyphs, the Osiris, the Tiatnot, or the Little Man, are really substitutes for Seth. You don't find them as replacements for that name in other contexts. So it's not like they are spelling Seti's name in a slightly different way, but with the same core meaning. Here, in the Temple of Osiris, they have fundamentally changed the king's name. In this temple, you will not find Seti. Instead, you will find Usiri, or Titi, or Usirtiti. This symbolic substitution also appears in other monuments of Seti I, most notably his memorial temple on the west bank of the Nile at the modern city of Luxor, and also in his tomb. The king's elaborate tomb in the Valley of the Kings obviously has many examples of his cartouches, but again, throughout this monument, you will not find the Seth hieroglyph. 
Instead, it is consistently replaced with these other symbols of Osiris, the Tietnot, or a simple bearded man. The result is that in these three monuments, the royal artists consistently remove the symbol of Seth, and they replace it with other hieroglyphs that are more appropriate to the context. Significantly, these are the only monuments where Seti changes his name like this. If you visit Karnak or Luxor Temple, you will find his name in its classic form. If you visit Cairo Museum or Heliopolis, you will find monuments that have the normal Seth hieroglyph. It's only these three structures that have the alternate spelling. Why? The reason we find it in these monuments, the temple at Abydos, the memorial temple at Luxor, and the tomb in the Valley of the Kings, is that all three of them are fundamentally connected with the world of Osiris. Abydos was the sacred city of Osiris, and the king's memorial temple was supposed to sustain his soul when he inevitably went to Osiris' kingdom. Then, of course, the royal tomb is a space fundamentally connected with Osiris and his world in the Duat. So these three structures are intimately connected with the god of the dead. Thus, it would be inappropriate to include the Seth hieroglyph in any of these contexts. The result is that if you visit the great temple at Abydos, the memorial temple on the West Bank, or the king's beautiful tomb, you're not really visiting the monuments of Seti, but rather the structures of Usiri or Titi. It's a strange feature of the king's reign. So, in monuments related to Osiris, the name of Seti I appears with a different spelling, and fundamentally, a different meaning. We have no idea who initiated this change. It may have been Seti's initiative, as an acknowledgement of Osiris' supreme importance, and the slight difficulty that his personal name presented. Alternatively, it might have come from the priests themselves, the servants who managed Osiris' temples and made offerings to the god on a daily basis. It's not hard to imagine a situation in which some overzealous priests may have insisted that if Seti was going to build monuments for Osiris, they needed to change the name. That is total speculation, we have no evidence either way, but it is entirely possible that some theologian raised the issue with the king, and ultimately initiated the change. Another point that might be relevant is that Seti initiated these changes just a few decades after the reign of Akhenaten. The heretic pharaoh, quote-unquote, showed very little interest in the religion of Osiris. In his worldview, Akhenaten and his sun-god Aten were the be-all and end-all of life on earth and life after death. Under Akhenaten, the temples of Osiris had been largely neglected. Even if he didn't attack them like he attacked Amun, Akhenaten was still largely disinterested in this god. Significantly, after Akhenaten's death in the days of Tutankhamun, Ai, and Horemheb, we do see a slow increase in the prominence and references to Osiris, both in royal and non-royal monuments. We'll get into that in the future, but long story short, 
following Akhenaten, Osiris seems to become even more popular than he had been before. With that in mind, it's easy to wonder if there was increasing attention and focus on the tale of Osiris, his importance as a king of the dead, and the promise of eternal life which his story offered. In that social and religious context, you might imagine that Egyptians started paying more attention to the tale of Osiris, and to Seth who had so cruelly betrayed him. In that hypothetical context, it's easy to imagine a ruler like Seti needing to make concessions within certain contexts. He might not do it all the time, but when it came to Osiris, Seti would not belong to Seth. In Egyptian mythology and religious history, Seth had a problematic role from the perspective of order and royal stability. He was a chaotic and rebellious deity who had committed great crimes against his family and against the lineage of kingship. Nonetheless, Seth did retain an important role in the natural world. He was the lord of deserts and storms, and the divine protector of Ra's solar boat. On Earth, the god was respected and appreciated. We have examples of people naming themselves after the deity, and statues or images of Seth do survive, especially from the New Kingdom. For King Seti I, the god Seth was a powerful namesake, one whom the pharaoh honoured with monuments and beautiful art. But a name like Seti, belonging to Seth, was a problem in certain locations or contexts. Monuments that had an Osirian character, monuments associated with Osiris, could not necessarily include a representation or even the hieroglyphs that referred to Seth. Seth's betrayal and murder of Osiris made him an inappropriate figure to include in those contexts. As a result, Seti I and his followers had to do something quite drastic. Whenever the king's cartouches appeared in those monuments, they would alter the spelling. When they did so, they fundamentally changed Seti's identity within these monuments. He was not called Seti by another name, or some euphemism for that deity. Sometimes his name would change to entirely different forms, like Usiri or Titi. He doesn't do this with any other god, just with Seth and just in Osiris monuments. Whether this change came from Seti himself or from the Osiris priests, we will probably never know. But it is an interesting feature of his reign, one that, at the time, was unique. There had never been a king named after Seth. There would be others in the future, but around 1300 BCE, Seti and those building and decorating his monuments were faced with an unprecedented challenge. Their solution is fascinating, and gives us a glimpse at personal and religious identities at the height of a pharaoh's power. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this tale of Seti I 
and his namesake deity. While Seti might have changed his name in response to pressure from the priests of Osiris, my priests have been nothing but supportive. I would like to give a special thank you to my top-tier supporters on Patreon.com. The priests help keep the temples running, and ensure that I, by whatever name I use, am able to research and tell these tales. Priest-level supporters get a special shout-out at the end of every episode, and accordingly, I would like to thank Veronica, Ashley, Neden, Kyla, Evan, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, Yola, TJ, Terry, and Linda. These fine folks are endlessly generous, and I and Seth are in your debt. To everyone listening, priest, patron, or otherwise, thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you soon.